0: This is Tom Fox. I'd like to welcome you to a special edition of All Things Investigation. In this episode, I visit with Kenyon Brown and Kevin Carroll about the indictment against former President Trump. Welcome to the Hughes Hubbard Anti-Corruption and Internal Investigation Practice Group's podcast, All Things Investigations. Hughes Hubbard Anti-Corruption and Internal Investigation Practices Group represents many of the premier companies around the world, providing advice on issues spanning the full anti-corruption and compliance spectrum. In this podcast, host Tom Fox and members of the Hughes Hubbard Anti-Corruption and Internal Practice Group will highlight some of the key legal issues involved in white-collar and other investigations, both domestically and internationally. We will tackle topical issues involved in investigations, as well as explore how companies can prevent and detect issues that arise in conducting investigations on a worldwide basis. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of All Things Investigation. Yes, I have Kenyon Brown and Kevin Carroll to talk about the indictment. That's all I'm going to call it. Gentlemen, thank you so much for making time to visit with me on this. I know you're both busy, but we're all greatly interested in this. You both have experience in these matters. I'm just going to start, get right into it, and maybe let's just go through the charges. Who wants to start?
1: Yeah. It's always Uh, a pleasure. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Oh, this indictment is mind-boggling mind, mind boggling in its specificness. I don't think I've ever seen this type of indictment with this much detail. It's what traditionally you call talking indictment, and it is not unusual, but prosecutors don't always have to use a talking indictment, and the reason they don't is because if for some reason they don't get all the facts in they want, But nonetheless, they prove the elements. They don't want the defense to be able to get up and say, hey, you haven't proved this fact or that fact. And it can be confusing to the jury and to say they didn't prove that particular fact. So, you know, I should find someone not guilty. So what that indicates to me, first of all, is they've got the goods. If they did not have the goods, they would not have pleaded this with such particularity. And the ranging scope of the actions that the former president, is alleged to have taken, it's just breathtaking. So I have to state my reaction to that overall. And before I get into the specifics, I'll let perhaps my colleague Kevin comment.
1: Kenyon called it a, a talking indictment. You could call this Maria Callas seeing a Verdi Aria indictment. It's incredibly detailed, right? And uh, down to photos. I don't recall often seeing photos in, in an indictment that helped prove the case. It couldn't have been a more thorough job by the Special counsel this
0: out. So one of there's several reasons to put specificity in an indictment. Obviously you put the defendant on notice, but it's also an educational moment. And I've, I've always thought it's a great opportunity to begin to educate the court on your claims and your evidence here. Obviously we have a much broader audience, which is the rest of the United States and maybe even the world. So with that, Who can explain the charges around the Espionage Act and why these are so significant?
1: So, I'll take a crack at that, just because I had to defend a 793 case once, 18 U.S. Scene 793, which is the statute regarding the mishandling of classified information. They, They went here for the subsection of the statute that pertains to retaining classified information without authorization and not in a proper storage facility and refusing upon request to return it. And I think that was the right subsection to bring and the right statute to bring, because there really can't be any question. That's exactly what happened here. Material of this level, top secret special compartment information, and then sub-compartments above that that are even more sensitive, has to be kept in what's called a special compartment and information facility. And there's no longer one of those at Marta Lago. And repeatedly, the first the National Archives, and then the Justice Department through the FBI asked for the documents to be returned. And not only were they not returned, but it appears that there was a conspiracy to obstruct justice to keep them from being returned. So it's really dead to rights on that statute.
0: Does there have to be dissemination of these documents, or is that not required?
1: No, there's other subsections that pertain to retaining it with the intent to giving it to a foreign enemy to gross negligence in their handling, which they sometimes charge when there's a spillage, an accidental spillage of classified information. And there's also a separate statute involving the, the dissemination of signals, intelligence, information, like communications intercepts. But under this one, all you have to do is illegally retain national defense information, not have it stored properly, and refuse upon request to return it.
2: Yeah, Tom, I kind of wanted to kind of lay out for your audience weren't already familiar,
1: the type of documents,
2: top secret is generally defined as something that could reasonably cause exceptionally grave damage to national security. Secret is serious damage to national security. Confidential is information that reasonably could be expected to cause damage. So I think it's worthy to note what type of documents the former president was trying to hang on to after repeated attempts from National Archives and the Department of Justice to get it. And I would note as well that they could have charged a range of, or rather a litany of additional charges because they actually obtained more than what they charged. They only charged them with 32 counts of retaining these types of documents when they collect, collected 102 from the search at mar lago So they did not go full bore.
1: While the facts are very descriptive, he could have been charged with additional counts. And Kenyon's exactly right. And to emphasize the sensitivity of the material, a former boss of mine from when I was mobilized after 9-11, later ended up as one of the presidential daily briefers for President Obama. And I asked him, I said, what is the material-like that's actually briefed to the president in the morning. Because the time of the president of the United States is the most valuable commodity in Washington, D.C. And he said that for it to be worth briefing to the president in person, it's generally extremely source-identifying human intelligence information about the hardest counterintelligence targets, such as Russia, China, North Korea, Iran, or really exceptional signals intelligence access to communications of foreign leaders or satellite capabilities that nobody thinks we could possibly have. It's the most sensitive stuff that he had there. And in addition, there was nuclear material, which is highly controlled for obvious reasons, and war plans. And I, one of the war plans here was the war plan related to strikes on, on Iran, if those became necessary. I worked on some stuff related to Iran And I never asked to see the entire war plan because it would be very alerting from a counterintelligence point of view if some random reserve officer, you know, asked to see the entire war plan reference Iran. Only a, a small number of people, such as the President of the United States, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, need to have that. These are just the absolute crown jewels of the intelligence and defense communities that were deliberately mishandled.
0: There are other charges, including conspiracy to obstruct justice, tampering with grand jury evidence, and false statements. Could one of you all speak to those charges as well?
2: Tom, I'll start with that. As a threshold matter, I was struck by how these charges came about largely by the information obtained by Trump's counsel, in that they gave the factual roadmap for the Department of Justice to bring these actions because one of his attorney's notes in conversations with Trump, taken from that context, I should say, really outlined the former president's direction to them to engage in certain acts. And then Mr. Naute, of course, being a co-conspirator with him in these latter charges, also engaged in certain activity. But the fact is, before an attorney can reveal what would typically be considered a client confidence under attorney-client privilege, was pierced here by the crime fraud exception to the attorney-client privilege. And that generally is something that can only be pierced if the government has gone to a neutral arbiter, the court, and said look we want these records that we think are there and they have to in the state of florida because it generally is delegated to the state law based upon the ethical standards that the state establishes for the conduct of lawyers there it says you have to prove a prima facie case of every element of the case that you're charging or the charge that you're charging to pierce this attorney-client privilege so while it's not out in public view now There was a hearing that took place in the state of Florida by a federal judge who listened to the government argue about the merit of their crime fraud petition. And an impartial judge agreed with them that they had met the prima facie standard to say, yes, the defendant in this case has committed some type of crime or fraud or cover up thereof. And therefore, I'm going to allow the government to pierce the corporate veil. And then, therefore, they were able to get those attorney notes that largely make up these latter charges. And that, to me, is also
1: fascinating. Yeah, it's going to be so interesting to see whether Judge Cannon, the district judge, goes with the rationale that that had been reached, that the privilege can be pierced. Or whether she's gonna consider de novo whether or not the next step can be taken and the attorney's testimony can be admitted when they before the pedit jury that's gonna decide the criminal case. And I can see that getting hairy pretty quickly. You know what I mean? If she if she rules for Trump there, that, that takes out one of the strongest parts of the of the indictment. And the government have an interlocutory appeal, I imagine, up to the up to the circuit and even the Supreme Court over that. So I think that'll become an issue appealed by either side pretty early in this and it'll have a lot to do with the eventual outcome of the whole case.
0: I want to leave a discussion about Judge Cannon to the side for a moment. And Kenyon, I want to ask you, or perhaps strong upon your experience as the U.S. attorney in Alabama, frankly, tampering with grand jury evidence to me just greatly offended me. And I don't know if it's because I hold the grand jury process sacrosanct, For whatever reason, but is that something you saw when you were the U.S. attorney and had to prosecute, or is that really an unusual charge?
2: I think it is a fairly usual charge. Now, witness tampering, on the other hand, during my tenure as U.S. attorney at eight years, came up probably three or four times. But we never had grand jury tampering just because it is so basic and folks know and generally have restraint with respect to the grand jury that no one actually tries it. But the fact that the president was a former president is alleged to have, for example, told his attorney to pick documents out what he was giving to the Justice Department or directed Mr. Nalte to move boxes to another room so that his attorney wouldn't find them when they were performing their review. It just goes beyond the pale. Just the the hubris, if I could use the word, of someone doing that and thinking they could get
1: away with it is just striking. Hubris is exactly the word. I mean, from the defense side, what's the very first thing that you tell a client when you find out that they might be the subject, the target of a grand jury investigation? Hey, don't delete anything. Don't move anything. You don't want the government to even mistakenly think that you're trying to do something like that while you're under investigation. And here, as Kenyon said, the president is on tape, actively encouraging people to, or at least according to the grand jury testimony of his lawyer, telling people to destroy or hide evidence sought by grand jury speed. It's shocking stuff.
0: You both talked about the seriousness of the charges against the former president. How serious could they be in terms of a penalty or sanction should he be convicted? So the most
2: serious penalty that the charges could bring is a statutory penalty of twenty years in prison and a two hundred and fifty thousand dollar fine for each of those counts. Now normally they run concurrently and I imagine they would here, but usually people aren't sentenced to that statutory maximum. But I could tell you if he goes to trial and he's found guilty, he won't get acceptance of responsibility and lower his months there in that way. And would he be seen as also an organizer of this trying to get people both knowingly and unknowingly and get an enhancement that would bump up his months it's possible certainly if i were the government i would make those arguments if you get to the penalty phase
1: you know one of the things that i think should be emphasized is that people are prosecuted under the statute all the time within the military justice system courts martial for service members that mishandle classified, or in the federal Title Three courts, or rather Article Three courts, when you've got civil servants such as members, of the civilian members, of the intelligence community, that mishandle classified information. And even with a plea in a circumstance where somebody has mishandled, unlawfully retained several hundred documents, yet pursuant to a guilty plea and a cooperation agreement, they would still be looking at a few years in prison. So it's... It's a serious crime. And I imagine that the sentence would, as Ken said, be too serious and reflect that.
2: Tom, I'd also like to bring up here that the prosecutors went to great pains to establish mens rea, or mental state, of the president in drawing up this indictment, citing his prior public statements and his knowledge of the law in this area and the former claims that he made that he was going to really bolster adherence to these laws while he was president. And so I think they've done a really good job of kind of turning that those public statements back on him to try to establish his mens rea. And that doesn't even get to the alleged audio tape that Kevin alluded to, where he explicitly acknowledges that he did not have the power to declassify as a private citizen. So I think he's got real jeopardy here. He's got some legal problems.
0: I'd like to turn to the judge now, Judge Cannon. And she was a prior judge in the documents case where a former president asserted some sort of executive privilege, and that was litigated in the 11th Circuit. Never had to ask for a judge to be recused. I've I was telling Kevin I filed a motion for mandamus, which did not go over well with the court, but maybe Kenyon had, have you ever had to ask for a judge to be recused? And I think that's one of the most difficult decisions a lawyer can make. Any lawyer.
2: So I have never asked for a judge to be forcibly recused, nor did, and that's for me personally, and and nor did I ask under my tenure as the U.S. attorney, one of my assistants on my behalf to ask for that. So That is an extremely rare occurrence, and doing it successfully, I think, is almost unheard of. So I think if the prosecutors do decide to do this, which I don't think they'll do, by the way, they've got an uphill battle, because basically the judge just has to adhere to canon three of the Judicial Code of Conduct, saying that they will judge it impartially, fairly, they have no personal stake in the outcome of the Criminal action or litigation. So I think if the government did try to make that move, they've got an uphill battle.
1: Yeah, I, I agree with Kenyon. The government could not put in a motion saying you were previously reversed by the circuit in an earlier decision related to this case. Therefore, you must recuse. That's just not be grounds for recusal. And I would also, I hope, as a country, we can get away from this idea of referring to people as Republican d- judges or Democrat judges, or that it's a Trump judge or it's an Obama judge it's really pernicious and and I think undermines respect for the courts and the rule of law. So I don't think that anybody should say Judge Cannon should have to accuse herself because she was appointed by President Trump. Lots of Trump appointees voted against cockamamie election fraud theories, despite the fact that he put them on the bench. But I'm sympathetic to Judge Cannon too, in that if she does stay on the case and she makes rulings favorable to the former president, such as excluding the testimony of his, his former counsel, She's going to be accused of trying to throw the case for Trump. And if Trump is convicted in her courtroom in this day and age, she's going to need physical protection for years afterwards. She's a person who is new to the bench. She is a comparatively young woman, I believe, in her early 40s with an entire career and decades of, of life and family life ahead of her. I She's in a tough position, and I'm sympathetic.
0: Let me change the subject just a little bit, because Kenyon, in a prior podcast, I was able to visit with you about the relationship of the U.S. Attorney's Office, to Maine Justice in Washington, to the Deputy Attorney General and the Attorney General. But what's the relationship of a special prosecutor to the to Maine Justice and to the Attorney General? And could you tell us about those, how those interactions occur now that we move to an indictment and up to a trial phase?
2: Sure. So typically a special prosecutor is appointed so that there is an independence of that person so that there's public confidence in the charging decision or non-charging decision that is made by the Justice Department. It's there to, in some measure, insulate the administration and the attorney general from any hint that there is a partisan or unfair nature of an investigation or prosecution. So generally speaking, The charging decisions are left to the special counsel, although I think there would be some type of end consult with the attorney general before charges are actually brought or not brought. And you saw that when Attorney General Barr was in office there, he ended up touching the final report before it was released with respect to some improprieties from then-President Trump. But generally speaking, the attorney general is going to be very hands off in terms of whether or not someone is charged and how that prosecution goes forward.
0: For instance, if Maine Justice brings a case and they come down to your court in Alabama, they might bring on talented local prosecutors another know the lay of the land and are more versed in local court procedures. Would that be true in this situation as well?
2: It could be. It could be. Sometimes the folks from Maine Justice will team up with the local prosecution, and they'll work in tandem together. But other times, you're just there as the local assistant U.S. attorney or prosecutor in an advisory role, and you give the full reins over to the the D.C. team that is prosecuting the case in your district. So I think that's largely discretionary.
0: Let me conclude by asking your thoughts on a trial, an anticipated trial date, how long you might think it would take. And uh, we both, all three of us have lived through several trials of the century, but this may be the trial of America. So (laughs) we're all on notice. If I could, I'm somewhat
2: surprised by the bombastic nature former President Trump's response. It looks like he's trying to build support, not so much on the facts, but paint it as a political prosecution. And no disrespect to the former president, but what comes to mind is, I don't know if you recall Baghdad Bob during the, the Gulf War, who would say, hey, we don't have tanks in our country. We don't have tanks in our city. And, and I think that President Trump uh, is trying to approach it in that way. Which is regrettable. Depending on the individual district, these cases would normally come to trial, I would say, within eight months to 16 months, somewhere in there. I imagine probably on the longer end in this one, given all of the motions that can be anticipated pre trial. So it's probably on the longer end of that spectrum, but it will not drag out for three years or something like that. This is rather going to move expeditiously towards a conclusion.
1: I agree with Kenyon, and there's been some questions about whether the case could have or should have been brought in Washington versus Florida, and whether it could have or should have been combined with the likely January 6th case. By doing it this way, charging just the classified documents-related stuff in Florida, one, it takes away what would have been an inevitable motion to change venue in Washington, D.C. I can't see why they'd have grounds for a serious motion to change venue out of out of Florida on behalf of the defendant. And in January 6th, there's a vast amount of discovery material that has to be gone through because all of the people posting on social media, all the security cameras, all the cops' body cameras, which would give a defense lawyer reasonable grounds to say, I need just a ton of time to prepare for this trial. Here, it's, as Kenyon said, they didn't charge some things that they could have charged. It's a pretty tight case. Nothing moves quickly in, in federal criminal procedure, it seems, but this is going to move more quickly than it otherwise would have. And uh, it's going to run right up against the political calendar with elections in ways that are unfortunate for the country, however it and the election turn out.
0: Gentlemen, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode, but I greatly wanted to thank you for jumping on this to visit with me. As I said, consumed all the oxygen from Washington to Florida to Texas to California. I hope we can get together and visit again as things progress.
1: We hope so, too. Our pleasure, Tom.
0: This is Tom Fox again. I hope you've enjoyed this special edition of the award-winning All Things Investigations. I've linked to the firm profiles of both Kevin Carroll and Kenyon Brown, as well as the firm website, so you can check out more information on Hughes, Hubbard, and Reed. If you've enjoyed this podcast, I hope you'll subscribe, rate, and review. All Things Investigations is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network.